Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brennan will be teaching out of the book of 2 Thessalonians. We're going to turn our attention now to 2 Thessalonians. Um, I trust you have made your way there in your Bibles and I want us to just go ahead and read together the first, we're, we're going to, there's three chapters in Thessalonians. We're going to take one chapter a week here, so uh, for the next three weeks, including tonight. First chapter has 12 verses. Let's go ahead and read those together here tonight. Beginning in verse 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also suffer. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. When He comes in that day to be glorified in His saints and to be admired among all those who believe, because our testimony among you was believed. Therefore we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of His goodness and the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we, we do give you thanks for your word here now, and as we study it, Lord, uh, help us to uh, understand. Lord, help us to apply it. Lord, help us to just simply love it, Lord, to appreciate and treasure your word for what it is, uh, a gift to us. And so, Lord, we give you thanks for this time here tonight, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What an introduction. Paul uh, certainly has a talent uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for being able to write a letter and to give an introduction that would just make anybody feel truly great about who they are and the work that the Lord is doing in their lives. Uh, here, Paul writes to them once again as a, as, as, as a proud parent, as one who the Lord used to birth this church, and he is just so taken by how the Lord is working in them and through them during this time. This letter follows closely behind the previous one. It's written in roughly the same time period in the year 52 or 53 uh, AD, most likely. And so this, this letter, this second letter to the Thessalonians, followed fairly quickly behind the first. Now, you might ask, why the second letter so soon? 
Well, word had come to Paul of additional questions that they had. Again, Paul, because of the brief amount of time that he was able to spend with them during his initial visit, if you recall, because of the things that were happening, Paul was basically ran out of town much sooner than he had intended to. Uh, There was uh, basically a, a great uprising in the city because of the gospel that was going forth, and Paul needed to leave. He thought it best for the safety and the sake of the church that was there that he leave. And so because he left, he was very concerned concerned about making sure that he was able to continue to teach this young church, to instruct them. And he had given in such a short period of time incredible information. I mean, if you think about even in the first letter to the Thessalonians, and and then as we go through this one, the things that he touches on really shows us that he gave them deep theological truths in a short period of time. But because of that, they had some lingering questions Uh, somewhat because of the difficulty of the content that he covered with them, but also because false teaching was coming in. And so word of additional questions had come to Paul, some of which was prompted even by a letter that was circulating throughout the area uh, that was claimed to be from the Apostle Paul, but was really false teaching. It wasn't him. And this was creating confusion, as you might expect. And, And this letter, once again, was saying that the rapture had already happened, and that the church, this young church, was now going through the Great Tribulation. And so they were concerned about this, and Paul wanted to address this false teaching. And, and, and furthermore, because of the belief that they were basically living in the last days, if, if in fact this church was enduring now the time of the Great Tribulation, well, many of the believers that were there basically said, well, why bother doing anything anymore? Why bother going to work? Why bother helping out with different uh, maybe ministries within the church? It's, it's, it's almost time to go. We're, we're in just enduring this suffering. And so they began to have many people who were, quite frankly, just lazy. They weren't doing the things that they were supposed to do. And they weren't giving themselves to the work at hand. And so Paul wanted to address these things. Now, the false teaching that was being circulated that the rapture had happened and that they were enduring the tribulation, it was, of course, concerning to them. But it was somewhat... Uh, understanding that they would believe this, absent, of course, a really thorough understanding of the eschatology that Paul had taught them, because, I mean, they were really going through it. I mean, this church was facing some very difficult times. Persecution uh, had increased. Things were very difficult for this church. Uh, Now, they were handling it overall quite well, but it's not too uh, surprising that they would think, man, we are in the midst of very difficult times. There are people today, and there's been people throughout history who have often thought we must be, maybe they held to a particular eschatology, a view of how the end times were going to unfold, and they find themselves saying, well, we must be living in the time of the tribulation. Things are just so bad. I've heard stories of those who endured things during World War I and World War II, in particular World War II, and Dr. J. Vernon McGee talks about a friend of his that had been there in Britain during the, the blitz and the bombings that came upon them. And, they, and, and during that time, the church was convinced that we must be living in the time of the tribulation. It just must be happening because things are so terrible. And there's been different times throughout history where people have felt that way. Now, some people continued to kind of hang on to that belief, but it's in foolishness because even though some things are happening around us right now that are pretty crazy, as J. Vernon McGee likes to tell in his story with this friend that was just convinced that they were continuing to, be, to live during the time of the tribulation, yet they were out to dinner in California enjoying uh, a couple of ribeyes. And, and McGee says, he looks at his friend, he says, you're, you're crazy. 
you're a fool. He says, if this is the tribulation, well, then bring on more of it because we'll have more steak at every meal, right? He says, it, it can't possibly be the case. Do you have any idea how bad the tribulation is going to be? Okay, and so many times I've heard this before with people's belief on the end times and some people who think, no, we're in it right now and yeah, it's going to get a little bit worse, but we're already in. Some people believe we're already in that time of the tribulation. I think to myself, man, well, this just isn't that bad. Not bad enough, certainly, to cause people to, to repent and to say, well, I, I can't, can't do this, can't endure this. And so for these people, though, they were enduring a lot of persecution it, it, from the very beginning. They had faced persecution from the time that they had come to Christ. And now, while we won't get there tonight, Paul makes it clear at the beginning of chapter 2 and really throughout chapter 2 that the day of the Lord, that time of the tribulation, had not yet come. He's going to tell them that certain things are basically forerunners for that time, two of which are very clear in terms of uh, the apostasy, a great falling away of the church, and the, the rise of the Antichrist. And so we're going to dig into that next week as we look a little bit more at the time of the tribulation and some of the events that we'll see unfold in the tribulation based off of insight from Ezekiel, Daniel, and Revelation. So we'll get there next week. But Paul makes it clear that time is not yet. And most, most importantly is the rapture of the church, as we know from our study of 1 Thessalonians. And so the fact that the church was still there, he's trying to encourage them, listen, it's not yet because you will be taken out before this time comes. Now, there's three chapters, as I've mentioned in this letter, and we're going to tackle one per week. And the first is similar to the last letter in terms of its greeting. In fact, the first few words, even the first couple of verses, are almost identical. There's really only one word that's different. So Paul greets them in very much the same fashion at the beginning of this letter. Uh, but in this chapter here, Paul's going to delve a bit into the judgment that awaits those who reject Christ. So this will be the first time, with the at least that we see written, where, where Paul really goes down this path with the church as to what's going to happen to those who are opposed to them and who reject Christ. And though it is a sensitive subject, of course, I don't think we can... I mean, even as I read it here tonight, you may have, you may have begun to sort of uh, grasp what it was that was being communicated there, but as we slow down a little bit, we're, we're going to see that, that there is some level of detail that's described in terms of the judgment that awaits those who reject Christ, and that ought to be a very sobering topic for us. When we think about that, we should think about those we know who are lost, and to think, well, I, I don't want anyone to face that. I don't want that to be their eternal destiny. But at the same time, though it's sobering, it also serves as an encouragement. Paul shares this with them as an encouragement that there will come a time of relief from the persecution that they're facing. Okay, And so as we get into the first few verses in this chapter... Uh, oh, excuse me, uh, I jumped ahead too far there. The second chapter, as I mentioned already, is going to deal with the tribulation. And then the third is really going to do what the first letter did, and it's going to give us some basic exhortation for how we should continue to live our lives in light of his return. Now, as we get into the first few verses in this chapter, what we're going to see is Paul's going to identify, just really in the first four verses, four reasons why he was thankful for this young church. He's going to touch on the fact that they had a very real faith a real genuine faith. He's going to address their growing love for one another as he says that their love was abounding more and more. He's going to touch on their tremendous patience that they're demonstrating in their lives and in their walk with the Lord. And finally, to commend them for their faith and hope. 
in what is to come. And so as we read there in, in verse 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Silvanus is Silas. That's a different name for Silas. So this is Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Silas and Timothy were co-workers, co-laborers with Paul, and he gives them a great deal of credit. Uh, I read earlier that, uh, you know, it's true that we really wouldn't have known much about these men had Paul not really taken the opportunity to highlight their work and uh, shows the heart of Paul. And he says, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a typical greeting of Paul's. It's similar to other letters, and in the first two verses, he makes clear what is truly important. Mentioning twice here, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul knows that this is what the church is founded upon. He knows that this is how the church is sustained, um, particularly as he considers the significant work that's happening in the church in Thessalonica. He's aware of the fact that, man, the Spirit is alive and at work through these believers. They love the Lord. Uh, they are preaching the gospel. They are sharing the truth of the Word of God. And so he commends them for this, and he just gives us here a very uh, clear understanding of the foundation of everything that they're, everything that they're enjoying here, the fellowship, the, the very fact that he's writing to them, it's, it's rooted in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he includes, as I mentioned, Timothy and Silas in this letter as they continue to be his fellow laborers and support him. And they'll play also a role, already have played a role in ministering to this particular church. Um, they've made their way through this area and have helped to minister to the church in Thessalonica. Now he says in verse 3 that we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting because your faith grows exceedingly. In the first letter he said, uh, he said that we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. And now this time he says that we are, we are bound to give thanks for you. Paul's really saying here that it's fitting, it's necessary, it's absolutely what he should be doing as he writes to this church because of their faith and how they're living their lives. He could not miss the opportunity to share with them and to encourage them and to basically say to them, I'm proud of you. I am proud of you, young church, for the way in which you are handling yourselves. And you see, this, this is amazing because persecution started when they first believed. Persecution started from the very beginning. There was no honeymoon period, as it were, for their faith in Jesus Christ. From the get-go, the attacks of the enemy were coming against them. Now, some of you may have a similar story to tell, probably not the degree of persecution that, that they were facing at this time. Uh, if so, please let me know, because we need to hear your testimony. But nevertheless, because we're blessed and we live where we live, you, you may still have experienced that when you came to Christ, things just got kind of disrupted in your life, right? Whether it was friendships, whether it was family relationships, whether it was uh, the job, just different things. And you may have found yourself going, man, Lord, I, I, I didn't think some of these things were going to happen. This is difficult. I'm going through some trials right now. Or maybe you were just, maybe you were, you were blessed. And, and quite frankly, uh, for me, it was all sorts of issues, all sorts of chaos in my life until I surrendered my life to Christ. And then everything, and then all of a sudden just, so much peace started to come in, and I was just on fire for the Lord as everything was awesome, right? I was a Jesus freak at that moment. Um, if we think about this young church, we'd have to kind of consider the fact that, man, very quickly uh, threats were being made on their lives. And that has to be a very 
rude awakening, if you will. That has to be a very difficult circumstance to face as they're coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And so to be hearing of what's happening in their lives, how they're living, of how they're treating one another, is truly an incredible thing. That's a work of the Holy Spirit so we can understand why Paul was just so proud of them. And so, you know, here it's absolutely amazing because persecution starts when they first believe and, and, and it doesn't stop. And in the midst of that, their faith is strong. Their faith is real. And really, it can be difficult to, for us to think about and certainly to embrace trials in our lives and know that they have a, a benefit to us. Right? We know that in our minds, right? If we study the Word of God, as many of you have for some time, now you are aware that Scripture would tell you that trials in your life can serve a purpose. That we believe and we, we often proclaim that all things work together for good. But we can oftentimes say that here, but it's another thing for it to make its way from our mind into our heart to where we truly embrace that and believe that. Amen? I mean, that's, we've just got to be honest with ourselves. I've said this a million times. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, boy, I hope I've got a real trial awaiting me today. Boy, I hope persecution is just waiting for me around the corner. Right? I hope there's tribulation coming for me this week. Hey, it's the weekend. Man, I hope my life gets turned upside down. No, what are we going to do? We're going to say, oh, finally a break. We just want to rest. We just want peace. I'm not faulting anybody for that. I want that as much as anybody. But... If we truly consider what Scripture has to say to us, we know that Scripture makes it clear these things are good for you. These things are beneficial for you. Because at the same time, we can find ourselves looking at a church like this and saying, man, would that be said of me? Would that be said of us? If Paul were writing us a letter, would he give us the same commendations that he gave to this young church? And I don't say that from a place of indictment upon us. It's a simple evaluation for us to just ask, would that be said of us? And if we want this, if we want this type of faith, well, what grows that type of faith? Certainly, we must all agree that the type of faith that's demonstrated to us within the Word of God doesn't come from a life of relative peace and ease. It just doesn't. We've referenced it seems many times over the last several weeks just because of where we've been in Scripture, what Peter writes in 1 Peter in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. He says, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Verse 7, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter is there saying, listen, this, this may be happening to you for a little while here, but just know that the genuineness of your faith, which is, which is far more precious than any gold that perishes, that though it's tested by fire, though there is, there is trials that are coming upon you, that you will be found to praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you see what produces that in our lives? And so when we look at this here, we need to consider the fact that, yes, the Lord uses these things. He uses trials. He uses tribulation in our life for His glory and to 
to make us into who he has created us to be. We are in a process of sanctification. It means that from the time that we got saved, when the Holy Spirit came in and dwelt us, we at that point were set apart. We were sealed and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But the work didn't stop at that point. You didn't just become some super Christian the day that you got saved. No, God said, I'm going to begin to work in you. If you allow me to continue to work in you, I'll continue to sanctify you. And the way in which he sanctifies us, sets us apart, grows us, matures us, strengthens us, and develops and transforms us, us is by the different things that he allows and brings into our lives, many of which, most of which, are difficult things. Because like anything in our life, as the, as the saying often goes, no pain, no gain, right? That's a term that's most often thrown around in the weight room or at the you know, football practice or whatever the case may be, but it has its application in life. God uses pain in our lives. He uses trials in our lives. And here now, Paul is looking at this church and he says, I thank God always for you as it is fitting because your faith grows exceedingly. Their faith was getting stronger and stronger. Praise God for that. And then he goes on to say, in the second part of verse 3, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. The love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. It means your love is growing. You're loving each other more and more and more. And listen, they were going through it. They were thinking, we are in the tribulation. I mean, let's not forget that here. It's not just like, well, we've got you know, some difficult things happening in, in our community right now. It's like, no, we, we really think that maybe right now God's wrath is being poured out upon us. And so their love in the midst of this was growing. This is one thing that we really have to consider here um, in James. In James chapter 2, in James chapter 2, in verses 14 through 18. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or a sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Why do I mention that here? Well, as we look at their faith that is growing, what must follow from this is evidence of their faith. It's not just one thing to say, well, I believe. But they ought to show it. And so here, as Paul commends them for their faith, he doesn't just simply say, hey, I know there's a lot of things that are happening to you right now, but you're telling me you believe. No, they're showing it in the way they live their life. And what's the way in which they're showing this? And by the way, Paul mentioned this consistently in multiple letters to different churches. Faith and love. Love ought to pour out from a place of faith. In John 13 and 34 and 35, we've considered this, I think, every week and every, every message over the last several weeks. As his disciples, we will be known by what? Our love for one another. Love is an outpouring of faith. If you believe in God, if you say you love him, but you hate your brother, you make yourself a liar, right? Scripture tells us that. And so if we truly love God, if our faith is in God, then it ought to show itself through our love for one another. And that's a wonderful thing about the church. Because the fact is, if we really accept this, then it means that as we look around this room and as we consider those who are watching online, all the people that, that are part of this body and all the people who are part of the, the, the capital C church, fact is, you have to love me. 
and I have to love you. It's not an option. Look around the room. Look at each other. Turn your head just a couple, just look around, okay? Just do it. Look around. You guys have to love one another. It's biblical. It's a commandment. If you say you love God, if you say you have faith in God, if you want to demonstrate incredible faith, you've got to love each other. Now, love in this culture has been super hijacked by all sorts of different causes, right? Nobody really even knows what love is anymore. Greater love hath no man than he who would lay down his life for another, which is demonstrated to us in, in none other than Jesus Christ. He is our example for that. And when we say things like God is love, absolutely God is love. You want to know love, you know it through God most of all. But then other people want to say, well, if God is love, he's not going to do this, and he's not going to condemn sin and this and so. Well, keep reading this chapter. Yes, the God who is love is also, going, is also just, and holy, and righteous. But listen, Faith and love, they're inseparable. They must go hand in hand. And our faith ought to produce something. And first and foremost, it needs to produce love. And consistently, we see Paul put faith and love together. Those things go together. And so if your faith, and so we should ask the question of, is your faith producing in you a love for other people? Now, I get it. There's some times when we just say, hey, we need a little bit of a break. We need to get away. We need some time away. We've had a little too much people lately. But listen, you have to ask yourself, do I love people? Because we are called to love people. We're called to love the body of Christ. So he says, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. So he's recognized here their, their faith. He's recognized their love. And then in verse 4, he says, so that we ourselves, he's saying that these two things are so significant, your faith that you're demonstrating, your love towards one another are so significant that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and your faith and all of your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. He's saying, you guys are incredible. You're the poster child, okay? You're the ones, if we, were, if we had a campaign right now to say, be this church, Paul would say, I want you guys all to be like this. Be like that. So great was their faith, so tremendous was their love, that in the midst of tribulation, they also had then great patience and great hope. Think about this for a moment. Let's go back uh, to 1 Thessalonians in chapter 1. In 1 Thessalonians 1, in verses 3 and 4, Paul wrote there in his first letter to them, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, your patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. There he mentioned these three things, your work of faith, your labor of love, your patience of hope. And then, towards the end of that letter, he brought it back again in chapter 5, I think in verse 8, he said, But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Over and over again, Paul keeps bringing them back to faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. We really should go, okay, there's something here that we need to understand. Paul wants us to know that faith, hope, and love are linked together. These things go together. And so their, their real faith, their very real, genuine faith, their, their growing love was also producing a patience, a trusting and real hope. Some of your translations may read that a little bit differently. Some of you may have, it may actually say hope there. And these, these words really do, they're somewhat interchangeable. Here as he says, your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. And so, here, they've got a real faith, a growing love that's producing a patience within them that's rooted. The patience is rooted in their hope of what is to come. But this, listen, this was coming about, 
this work in their life was coming about because of the trials that they were going through. I mean, this isn't an indictment on us. I'm not faulting any one of us. But it doesn't say that this was coming about because of their frequency of, of, of Bible studies and their frequency of fellowship gatherings and their frequency of potlucks and different things. That may have been an outpouring of that, their desire to be together. But, but the fact is, what was happening in their lives, this very difficult time that they were going through, that was what was helping to produce these things. Now, why do I keep mentioning this? Well, I mean, we, we have been going through some difficult times. Many of you different difficulties than others. But, but even over the last few months, it's been more of, a, more of a widespread kind of universal, there's some stuff happening here and it's affecting everybody. And the fact is, uh, while we all hope that, that there will be some normalcy that returns, we don't quite know what, we never, we never knew what tomorrow was going to bring. And we certainly still don't. I mean, my goodness, this week alone, it's wear a mask, don't wear a mask. Asymptomatic a problem, actually, if you're asymptomatic, you're not really a problem anymore. If you have this blood type, maybe you're vulnerable. If you don't have the, I mean, it's just every day, there's all these different things causing everybody to go, well, wait, well, wait a second, what do I need to do now? How do I do this? How do I, every, all, all, every day, we're all trying to figure out, what do I, how do I live my life today? When I go outside, what am I supposed to do? And it's making us, and, ho- and hopefully it's causing us just to go, okay, Lord, <laughs> you are on the throne, Lord. You got this, Lord. Help me to just rest in that, right? And I just pick out those, just those few little silly things because they are they're that. They're, they're, they're silly, but it's, but it's evidence of the fact that our lives are in somewhat of a turmoil. And I'll go back to a statement that I just made. We all hope for some return to normalcy because that is our tendency to say, man, I hope this passes. I hope this goes away. That's, that's my tendency. When the trial comes, I say, Lord, how much longer? Lord, I'd like this to pass. If we could just get beyond this now. I mean, I'm a guy who I like it to just be kind of peaceful, right? I just like it. I don't like chaos. I don't like uh, conflict. I don't like, let's just get past this as soon as we can. But what I'm telling you tonight, and I'm telling this to myself, is that's the wrong attitude. It's the wrong attitude for us to have. As we think about this young church, the trials that they were going through, for them, and for many today, in fact, the majority of the world today, they live, especially when you think about the church, they live under continual daily pressures of trial and persecution. And so it's not to make us feel bad, but when we think about some of the things that we're facing, I think even recently it's been more of me kind of going, man, this is, you know, I'm, I'm feeling inconvenienced right now, and I'm just beginning to scratch the surface of what my brothers and sisters in Christ outside of this country deal with on a daily basis. And yes, our country is a special country, and so I, I hope that we haven't lost some of what we've enjoyed for a long time because, man, do I like it. But i got to be real sometimes and go, man, it's given me some perspective. And again, if I want the type of faith that is, that, that is written about, well, it does require that I don't look at it from the standpoint of, Lord, make this go away as fast as we possibly can. I don't want to deal with this anymore. But instead, to embrace it to truly embrace it. Uh, going back to, uh, to James, in um, James chapter 1 there, and in, in beginning in verse 2, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. 
If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation. Because as the flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner is the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. You see this word patience here used many times throughout Scripture. It can also be translated endurance, which we read in, in, uh, in the word here. And it means bearing up under. When we think about patience, when we think about endurance, it means bearing up under, coming up under something that's putting pressure down upon you. But uh, Barclay writes that it describes, he says it describes the spirit which does not only patiently endure the circumstances in which it finds itself, but which masters them and uses them to strengthen its own nerve and sinew. It accepts the blows of life but in accepting them, it transforms them into stepping stones to new achievement. What Barclay's saying there is as you bear up, as you endure and you become, as you patiently endure the trial, it means that you bear up underneath it and you don't just go, oh, I can't, I can't hardly take this anymore. Take this from me. Make it pass, Lord. But rather, Lord, help me through this. Right? Help me to bear it, Lord. Help me to learn from it. Teach me, Lord. Instruct me. Make me stronger. The fact is, the longer you bear up underneath something, if you carry it, you're going to, you're going to become stronger. Your body is going to get stronger. And so it's about embracing it. And as he says, accepting the blows of life, but in accepting them, transforming them into stepping stones to new achievement. Lord, what are you, how are you going to bring me through this? Lord, if you say all things work together for good because I love you, Lord, then I know that you're going to use this and you're going to take me to a different place. Lord, you're going to teach me. You're going to grow me. You're going to strengthen me. You see, that needs to be our attitude. And so even right now, there's been days, even earlier today, where I was just frustrated. I was frustrated about all this stuff because we're trying to make plans for things here at church and we're trying to think about the summer and it's like, man, I'm done with this. I'm frustrated with this. And the Lord brings me back to saying, are you embracing this? Are you allowing me to teach you and allow me to instruct you? Are you allowing me to transform you through this time? You know, again, let's go back to some of our nuggets of wisdom. It, it is wrong when we ask the Lord, when we come to the Lord and we say, why, Lord? That's irrelevant. But rather, the proper question to come to the Lord with is, what, Lord? What, are you, what is it that you're doing, Lord? How do you want to transform me? What do you want to do, do in my life? I mean, you'd be doing the same thing about, right? Lord, look at what you're doing in your church. In this church, Lord, what, what, what do you want us to do? Okay, if we can't do this this summer, if we can't make this plan, if we can't function this way, Lord, what do you want us to do? How do you want us to adapt? How do you want us to change? What are you doing in your church? I need to have that mindset. In 2 Corinthians, in uh, 2 Corinthians in chapter 12, in verses 9 and 10, Paul writes, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, Paul was one who teaches us how to embrace this. He says, he says I delight in it for Christ's sake. Because when I'm weak, he is strong. 
or elsewhere, even in First, in first Peter in chapter 4. In First Peter in chapter 4, verse 12 and following, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part He is blasphemed, but on your part He is glorified. But let none of you suffer... Now listen here, there needs to be a pause there, okay? So this is the point where Paul says, look, or excuse me, Peter, says, says glory in this. Don't be surprised by it. Delight in it. But then he says, but wait a second here, in verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, as a busybody in other people's matters. So he gives this sort of uh, little side note here. Hey, if you're suffering because you're an idiot, that's called a consequence, okay? So don't try and say, oh, you know, praise be to God, I'm suffering for the Lord. No, you did something stupid, and that's called a consequence, okay? So let's be, let's be honest about that. Yet, verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? How do you view trials in your life? We've got to be willing to ask ourselves that. How do I truly view trials in my life? And then to the extent that's necessary, repent of that and say, Lord, change my perspective. It's not easy, but Lord, help me to look at, to view, and to endure trials in a way, Lord, that allows you to be glorified in and through my life. Verse 5, he says, which is manifest evidence. Now, now, Paul here is tying this to the comment he's already made, the fact that they are going through trials, persecutions, tribulations, the things that they endure. And now he says, this is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also suffer. What is Paul saying here? What he's saying here is that suffering once again, as we've read elsewhere in Scripture, is a sign that God loves you. Well, I don't know about that, Paul. That seems like a stretch. I don't know. I don't feel really loved by God right now as I'm enduring all these different things. He says, no. This is a sign that God loves you and He cares for you. Now, don't forget what Peter told us, right, in terms of don't, don't, don't suffer as, a, as an evildoer. But nevertheless, even then, it's not a, even if there's a consequence or if it's training and it's discipline, it's all in love for us. Never punishment. We've got to know that. But listen, when you find yourself in a place where you feel like, man, God must be mad at me, when, you feel you're, when you're in a place where you're saying, when you're feeling condemned, when you're saying, well, yeah, it's because I've done this and God's just done with me right now, you are forgetting the fact that Jesus Christ bore your sin upon the cross. Okay? And so it's never about punishment. Jesus took that for you. But yes, as a father who loves you, he wants to teach you, right? Think about um, in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27. Philippians 1, 27. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And not in any way, verse 28, terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. It's been granted you. Congratulations, Christian. You've been given the opportunity to suffer for Christ. And at first we may say, boy, I don't know that that sounds like the greatest thing, but think about the means of your salvation, that Jesus Christ himself suffered. 
Think about the one who helped to carry his cross that day. Have you ever found yourself saying, what would I do? Knowing what I know now, would I find myself to be incredibly privileged to have helped to carry his cross? Well, good news, you get to pick it up every day and deny yourself. And even when those times of persecution and tribulation and whatever it may come, you can glory in it and say, thank you, Lord, that you've counted me worthy to be persecuted for your sake. Consider also, I mean, we, we recently dealt with this in, in, uh, in Hebrews, right? In Hebrews in chapter 12, we saw there this, this, same, this same thing. In Hebrews 12 and verses uh, 7 through 11, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us, as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. That right there, that's the icing on the cake, that he says we may be partakers of his holiness. And so as we think about these things that may be coming into our lives, and certainly for this group of believers that Paul was writing to, listen, you being persecuted, you going through trials, and allowing these things in your life and using these things, it's so that you can partake of His holiness. So again, it goes back to sanctification. So how do we view trials? Do we embrace them knowing, okay, God, this is part of my sanctification. You're making me into who you created me to be. God's discipline of his children is always to draw them into a closer relationship with him. And for those who reject him, there is a consequence. And truly, the next six verses, they should create for us uh, somewhat of a great conflict, where uh, on one hand, there is a great sense of peace as we rest in Christ and the work that will be accomplished. And on the other hand, great uneasiness as we consider the fate of those who die without Christ. Because it's here that Paul says, I want you to know what's going to happen. Because remember, they've been being persecuted against, right? People are coming after them. And in verse 6, he writes, Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation, those who trouble you. You guys are going through tribulation. It's a righteous thing with God that they will go through tribulation. The ones who persecute you, the ones who trouble you, for lack of a better way of saying it, they're going to get theirs. And so there is encouragement in this because there's probably, no matter how strong their faith, their hope, their love was, there must have been the question for them, how long, Lord, of those who inflict such pain and persecution against us, Lord, are they going to get away with this forever? And we see the evil in our world today. And we can think to ourselves, Lord, like uh, we read in Scripture, why do the wicked prosper? Well, there will come a time. But the fact that that time hasn't come yet is because God is so gracious and merciful that He desires that none should perish. But rest assured that judgment will come. They too will face tribulation, but it will be of a different sort. And some people ask, would God, would God do that? Could God really do that? Is this, this God who is love, would he really inflict punishment upon people? In Romans, in Romans 9, 14, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. What Paul is proclaiming there is, listen, he is a holy and righteous God. And this is incredibly, uh, it's sobering for us, yes. But the fact is, 
there is coming a time when God's judgment and His wrath will be poured out on those who have rejected Him. And this is not revenge. This isn't God just saying, well, I'm angry and I'm going to get you now. But rather, this is the action of a holy and righteous God who cannot look away, who, who must bring to bear a consequence upon a people who are in rebellion, who has given His Son, Jesus Christ, to pay that price, to take care of that, to reconcile things. But it's up to us to receive Him as the Spirit draws us under repentance for us to to receive christ and so this is about justice in verse 7 paul writes and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the lord jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels so on one hand here he's saying those who trouble you tribulation will come upon them there is awaiting those who have rejected christ a punishment and on the other hand there is rest for the christian and it is okay for us to go praise god Thank you for that, Lord. I need rest. I want rest. The promise for believers is rest. Right? I mean, think about in Revelation in chapter 21, in verse 3 and 4. Revelation 21, 3 and 4, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain. For the former things have passed away. That is the promise to us, Christian. There is rest in that, and that's a wonderful thing. And we go on and read all of, of, of Revelation 22 as, as John gets the vision of the, of the river and, and then is told of the time being near. This is the promise to us. And so we should look forward to that. That is our hope. That was what was causing them to say, okay, I'm hoping, I'm trusting. But we also, as the church today here in a time when the Lord Jesus has tarried in his return, can't ignore the opposite of this. And that is what we read in verse 8 and 9, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. This ought to be a very sobering thing to us. And this should be something that causes each of us to truly say, man, if this doesn't bother me, if I I can't look at somebody who I know doesn't know the Lord and read this and not be troubled in some way and not feel compelled in some way to say, I gotta gotta figure out how to tell them, then you gotta take that to the Lord. We truly have to evaluate that and say, man, something's wrong with my own heart. Because as a Christian, this is what we have been spared from because of Jesus Christ, but there are still those who are lost. And who are those who are lost? Right here, this is a wonderful way for us to understand how God views those who are unbelievers, as he says, those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those those are the qualifiers there. They don't know God and they don't obey the gospel. And here's the sad thing too, there's a whole lot of people in the church today that say they know God, but they don't obey the gospel. And I'm not saying we got to, listen, we all struggle with different aspects of the word of God, but there's a difference between those who recognize it, repent of it, and say, Lord, help me in this area of my life. I need, I need to improve here versus people who just are oblivious and, and, and they go to church out of religion and they've been in church their entire lives and their dad and their daddy's dad and their daddy's dad's dad and they got a name on a pew somewhere and it's just like, man, I'm in. Or those who teach infant baptism and because I was baptized as an infant, I'm good to go. Whatever the case may be, I mean, these are people who, who don't know God and they don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It says these shall be punished with everlasting destruction. That means being destroyed forever. 
their presence with the Lord or the Lord's presence in their lives, albeit even because they were just around other believers and the Holy Spirit was there restraining evil, that they will be forever separated from any aspect of His presence. And so there will be a full and complete punishment that is carried out, destruction from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of His power. And this speaks here, this literally speaks of a, of a loss of all things that give worth to existence, but yet they will still exist and experience eternal separation from the presence of God. People who say we're living in those times, we must consider what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 41. Excuse me, verse 21. It's all really the whole section there. <clears throat> For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. He goes on to say, and unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. I mean, all, all through there, all through Matthew chapter 24, we get insight into this time, and it says there's ne- this, it's going to be a time like nobody has ever seen or experienced before. Even going back into Revelation in chapter 20, there at the end of Revelation 20, I think it is, verses 14 and 15, then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That's at the final judgment, the great white throne judgment after the time of the tribulation. Again, we'll consider some of that next week. It's not the things of a feel-good message, right? But Paul intends for this to be an encouragement to them, and it should be to us as well. It should be an encouragement, and it should be an exhortation. He goes on to write in verse 10, when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. That day, this time that he's writing of, will look very different for believers. And for us, it will be a time of celebration. It will be a time of rejoicing, a time when he will be glorified in us and through us fully in a way that we don't truly understand. And the only way in which this will be a celebration is because in our glorified knowledge and understanding of his perfect plan, we'll be able to celebrate. Because right now, I can't wrap my mind around how that could be a day of rejoicing when so many are lost but I trust that it will be because God will give us understanding because we will, <laughs> we will know Him the way that we are intended to know Him and it will make sense to us. But I think to some degree God doesn't give us everything in His Word. He doesn't give us too much of what heaven will be like because He doesn't want us to be overly heavenly minded while we've got a mission to, uh, to, to continue to be a part of while we're here on earth. And so He gives us little bits of things and limited understanding on some things so that right now all I can find myself feeling is a sense of relief that that's not me, but a sense of burden that there's others who are awaiting this judgment. And Paul begins to close out the beginning of this section. And remember, there's no chapters in the letter. Okay, the letter was just going to keep right on going. But he comes to a place where he's going to sort of change the topic here at the end of this chapter. And he says in verse 11, Therefore, we, because of this, therefore we also pray always for you, that our God would count you worthy of this calling. And so you see, there is some accountability for us there, especially as we think about those who do not know God and don't obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. Man, we've got to be, we've got to be really thoughtful about, like, is this me? Am I, am I walking worthy of this calling? And, and what is the calling here? What ultimately is the calling? He calls them back, really, to verse 10. This is what he's connected it to. And the calling is that he would be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you is believed. The calling is that he would be glorified in our lives lives. And so Paul here is praying that you would be counted worthy of 
the God in heaven, the creator of the universe, being glorified through your life. That's your calling. You know, a lot of us want to try and determine what is our calling in life, what's our vocation, right? That's a good thing to do. It's a good thing for us to consider what would God have me do with my life. But make no mistake about it, he's not hidden his will from you. He's not hidden his ultimate calling from you. He wants to be glorified in you. You are his image bearer. And so Paul's praying that you would be counted worthy of this calling, that he would, in fact, be glorified in your life. We may say, well, how do we do that? How do I glorify him in my life? Well, Paul tells us here, he says, and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him. And that's what he's saying. He says, live a life of good pleasure, of his goodness. Exalt him. That the work of faith with power allow him to demonstrate himself in and through your life. Live your life in a way that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ might be glorified in you. Are you living your life in a way, especially in this time, or is there, is there such faith in you and such love for other people in the way in which you're living your life, you're thoughtful about the different things you do throughout the course of the day, that other people are looking at your life and they're saying, praise God, look at them. God is at work in their lives. And we've got to evaluate this daily. We have to. Everywhere we go, everything we do. I'm trying to be so much more mindful now of just even what I look like when I walk through the door at the store. And how I smile at people and offer to help people. Because I'm like, man, I know I can be a pretty intimidating looking guy. So I've been told. You can think I'm angry. I'm not angry at all. I'm actually quite happy. I just have this face that looks like this sometimes. I've got to be intentional about that. You heard the story. I don't want to bore you with the whole thing again. But I mean, go back to my target days. My first best team survey. I thought it was going to be great. Oh, we don't like this guy. He's scary. He's intimidating. He makes me nervous. Right? All these different things. I'm thinking, whoa, man, this is terrible. My team hates me. You know what solved it? Do you know what made my next survey just so great? I had to have a follow-up survey because it was so bad. So I got a special survey, quicker than all the other guys. Next survey was great. It was great. It was wonderful. Part of it was certainly about just more conversation with people. What a novel concept, right? But you know what the number one thing was that changed things? I mean, literally, I just smiled more. A stupid, cheesy smile. People were like, this guy's really friendly. I got him all wrong, you know? I, I mean, we, sometimes it's literally that. You're going into the store just being intentional about, hey, how are you? Smile. We could do a little bit more of that. And so we got to be conscious of this because we want God to be glorified through us. And certainly, and I say some of that in jest, it goes much deeper than that. How does this happen? Well, Paul rounds it out and says, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so praise God for that. Because if that's the extent of my skill set as a cheesy smile when I walk through the door, then I'm hopeless, right? But because of the grace of God and us surrendering our lives to him and saying, Lord, I want to be worthy of the calling. I want you to be glorified through me, Lord. And so I surrender my life, Lord, daily. And so for us to summarize here tonight, we need to welcome discipline. We need to endure it. As the trials come into our life, yes, we want it to go away as quickly as possible, but not at the expense of us being able to learn what it is that God has for us during that time. And I firmly believe that as we go through these things, because listen, some of us were not very good about sharing with our brothers and sisters in Christ about the trial that we're going through. Why do you think their love was abounding toward one another? Because they were all going through it. And so they helped each other. And doesn't it make it a whole lot easier to endure the trial when we go through it together? When we're willing to share, here's what's going on in my life, and you have a faithful brother and sister come alongside you and say, I'm with you through this. 
And then suddenly we can. We go, man, I'm not alone. And yes, Lord, I know you're with me, but thank you, Lord, for bringing my brothers and sisters around me. And then as you go through it, now you can say, I can do this. And then you, you do learn and you listen and you grow through it. And so we need to welcome this. We need to endure it. We need to be willing to embrace it and to use it so that your faith, your love, and your hope would grow, allowing you to represent him for him to be glorified in and through your life. And we can do this if we trust in him, that he will handle it, that he is working all things together for good. It could be said that what Paul is telling them here is he's got your back. Keep pressing on. He's got your back. And we need to remember that here tonight. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we, we close here now. and we, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, for how you instruct us and you challenge us, Lord, and you encourage us by, through your spirit, Lord, in your word. And I just pray, Lord, that it would continue for each of us. Lord, we know we are living in some different times, Lord. And certainly, Lord, we, we look around us and we think, man, Lord, this, your, your return must be soon. And we long for it, Lord. I pray all of us are longing for it, hoping for it. But Lord, we don't know when that time will be. And so we are to be busy about the Master's business, Lord. We're to be working for you. We're to be living our lives in a way where you get glory, Lord. And we need your help with that, Father. Because we're weak in the flesh. We don't like to endure trials, Lord, and tribulation. We don't like to go through difficult times. So, Lord, help us by your Spirit. Give us the strength. Equip us, Lord, to go through the things that you've appointed for us, Lord, that we might grow and be transformed. And help us, Lord, to continue to grow in our faith and our love for one another. Help us to walk alongside each other, Lord, to truly be the church that you've created us to be. Lord, we can live out these principles in our life and demonstrate them, Lord, to a lost and dying world. Father, we thank you so much that you care enough for us to meet us right where we are, to instruct us and to teach us, to encourage us with these things. Lord, help us not to leave it here, but to take it with us, Lord, to apply it to our lives and to truly be about, Lord, doing your work, striving to accomplish these things by the strength of your Spirit, Lord, and with the grace that you show us. Lord, we're grateful for that. We know we couldn't do it on our own. So, Father, we love you and we praise you. And then, Lord, I ask for your blessing upon each of these here, Lord, as they follow after you. Go before us, Lord, as a good shepherd. Lead and guide us in all things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.